Heavenly Father, thank you for your sovereign oversight of history and the way that, uh, and we see it recorded in the scriptures, uh, you have put into motion uh, your plan of redemption, uh, foreshadowed in the Old Testament, particularly through the laws you gave and fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. So please we pray, as we reflect on this whole area of law, your law, and how this relates to us as people living in the era of the new covenant, uh, we pray that we would have clearer understanding uh, which would lead to clearer and deeper joy and lives which reflect your glory. Amen. Uh, Dr. Laura Schlesinger, try pronouncing that early in the morning, uh, she is a radio personality in America. Uh, on weekdays, uh, she runs a popular call-in radio show uh, in which she dispenses advice. Uh, she's an Orthodox Jew who is not afraid to speak her mind. Uh, some years ago, she expressed the view that homosexual practice is an abomination. And she put forward this view based on uh, a text in the book of Leviticus, 18 verse 22. In response to her comment, uh, one listener wrote a tongue-in-cheek letter to Dr. Laura, which he then posted on the internet, and I'm going to read it to you. Dear Dr. Laura, thank you for doing so much to educate people regarding God's law. I have learned a great deal from your show and try to share that knowledge with as many people as possible. When someone tries to defend the homosexual lifestyle, for example, I simply remind them that Leviticus 18 verse 22 clearly states it to be an abomination. End of debate. I do need some advice from you, however, regarding some of the other specific laws and how to follow them. When I burn a bull on the altar as a sacrifice, I know it creates a pleasing odor for the Lord, Leviticus 1 verse 9. The problem is my neighbors, they claim the odor is not pleasing to them. Should I smite them? I know from Leviticus 11 verses 6 to 8 that touching the skin of a dead pig makes me unclean, but I still play foot may I still play football if I wear gloves. And my uncle has a farm. He violates Leviticus 19 verse 19 by planting two different crops in the same field, as does his wife by wearing garments made from two different kinds of thread, cotton and polyester blend. He also tends to curse and blaspheme a lot. Is it really necessary that we go to all the trouble of getting the whole town together to stone them? Because Leviticus 24 verses 10 to 16 says so. Uh, couldn't we just burn them to death at a private family affair like we do with people who sleep with their in-laws? Leviticus 20 verse 14. Leviticus 21 verse 20 states that I may not approach the altar of God if I have a defect in my sight. I have to admit that I wear reading glasses. Does my vision have to be 20-20 or is there some wiggle room here? I know that you have studied these things extensively, so I am confident you can help me. Thank you again for reminding us that God's word is eternal and unchanging. Your devoted fan, Jim. Well, there we go, a letter from Jim. Uh, it's obviously tongue-in-cheek, but it does raise some serious issues. Uh, the, promise of the, letter is, the premise of the letter is that people 
arbitrarily pick and choose what they want from God's Old Testament law. That they highlight commands, for example, that condemn homosexual practice, but happily overlook other commands which don't really suit them. And the challenge thrown down to Dr. Laura as an Orthodox Jew is one that applies equally to us as Christians. In the debate about uh, homosexuality within the Christian circles in recent years, uh, critics of the traditionalist view seized on this apparent inconsistency and hypocrisy. Uh, Their slogan was this, how can you condemn homosexuality when you eat prawns? Uh, If you're a bit bemused by that, uh, in Leviticus 11, shellfish are among those foods that were forbidden as unclean. So the point is, uh, aren't Christians being hypocritical in on the one hand condemning homosexual practice whilst tucking into a plate of prawns bought from costly seafood? Isn't there an inconsistency? Well, uh, it is a fair challenge. How would you respond? Well, today we're kicking off a new sermon series uh, in which we will work through the book of Leviticus. Uh, It's one of the five books of the Old Testament scriptures referred to as the Torah, uh, the law books. Uh, Leviticus is full, as we will see, of detailed regulations and commands. In fact, the last verse of the book summarizes the content of the book. Uh, Look at Leviticus 27, verse 34. Uh, These are the commands the Lord gave Moses at Mount Sinai for the Israelites. Uh, The questions that arise are these. How do we relate to these commands as Christians? Uh, Does the Old Testament law still have a place in our lives? And if so, on what basis do we heed some commands but seemingly ignore others? So it's an important issue for us to think through, and I'd put to you for two reasons. Firstly, because unless we understand this, we will be open to the accusation of being inconsistent and hypocritical when it comes to living out uh, the Bible. And we're holds, don't we, to the Bible being God's inspired word, which should shape our life and belief. So we need to think through how we can respond to that charge of being, it would seem apparently, inconsistent. But secondly, the reason uh, we need to look at this is that it raises issues for us as Christians. How should we live? How do we interpret the Bible? Uh, How does God's law have a place in our lives as new covenant believers? These are big issues. Uh, What we're seeing, of course, in our current series in Romans is that the law, God's law, gets a large amount of airtime. And hence, this series in Leviticus is intended to complement our series in Romans, exploring this relationship between the Old Testament law and the New Testament believer. Uh, As I've alluded to, uh, in this introductory sermon, we're not going to yet get going uh, with Leviticus. Rather, we're going to step back and explore the bigger picture of the place of God's Old Testament law in the life of the New Covenant believer. Uh, To do that, therefore, we'll look at a range of passages throughout the Bible. Uh, Now then, if you've ever signed one of those tenancy agreements which commits you to paying exorbitant rents for a Sydney rental property, you'll know that probably around page two or three on your agreement is a page entitled Definitions and Terms. 
And then it explains the meaning of terms used in the body of the contract, such as landlord, tenant, and emergency. It doesn't use the word exorbitant, but maybe that should be in there as well. In speaking about Old Testament law, and to avoid confusion, we need to define our terms. Because we're going to see the law is used in the Bible in at least two different ways. So the first way that the law is used in the Bible is to refer to the first five books of the Bible, what's called the Pentateuch, Pence meaning five, the five scrolls. Uh, in Luke chapter 24, uh, verse 44, we see Jesus uh, commenting on this, but also putting it in the context of the whole of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, look at Luke 24. Uh, Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Do you see? Uh, Jesus is dividing the whole of the Old Testament scriptures into three portions. Uh, that is the law of Moses. In other words, the Pentateuch, Genesis through to Deuteronomy, uh, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the writings. So that's one way that the term law is used in the Bible. But there's another sense in which it's used, and that is more specifically referred to the commands, the laws, the regulations that God gave to his people recorded in those first five books. So uh, the Ten Commandments are a summary at the heart of this law, uh, but it is more than that. Uh, the law in this sense refers to all the civil and ceremonial regulations given by God to Israel. And it's in this second sense of law that we're going to look at today. Law in that narrower sense. Not just the first five books of the Bible, but all the detailed commands and regulations in those first five books. It's what the final verses of Leviticus refer to as, as we've seen, the commands the Lord gave Moses on Mount Sinai for the Israelites. So these were, of course, the obligations that God's people were to obey as part of the covenant at Sinai. So we're going to divide our time in looking at two key questions. How a Christian should apply the Old Testament law, and then how the Christian should relate to the Old Testament law in their, old, in their everyday life. So how should a Christian apply the Old Testament law? Uh, there are two principles we particularly want to nut out. Uh, we're asking this question, how do these commandments apply to us as Christians? Uh, and there are two key principles. Uh, firstly, uh, the Bible is an unfolding story. Uh, the Bible is a true story, and it covers uh, thousands of years. Uh, it begins with creation and ends with the new creation, uh, Genesis through to Revelation. But it is all one integrated story. Of course, it's a story about God's kingdom, which God gradually reveals and builds and draws people into. And one of the marks of God's dealings with people in this story is that he makes covenants with them. Uh, a covenant, of course, is a bit like a contract, uh, such as what you would have if you took out a rental agreement. Uh, a covenant was drawn up and made with the people, the people of Israel, at Mount Sinai. So, God's Old Testament people lived under that covenant. But it didn't stop there. Uh, the Bible is an unfolding story which all fits together. And as the Old Testament progresses, the prophets look forward to the day when God will make a new covenant with his people. 
So, at Jeremiah 31, we read this. Verse 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Fast forward to Jesus. The night before he goes to his death. The Last Supper. He's in that upper room. And then... He says these words to his disciples, Luke 22, verse 20. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Through his death, through the pouring out of his blood, he inaugurates the new covenant promised by the prophets. And therefore, as New Testament people, we now relate to God through this new covenant. This is the agreement which we have signed up to. Do you see the implication of that? The implication is this. We can't, therefore, just open our Bibles at Leviticus and pluck any verse out and say, why on earth are we not living this out? Uh, To take an example again from the letter to Dr. Laura, uh, Leviticus 21 verse 20 states, and I'm quoting again, that I may not approach the altar of God if I have a defect in my sight. I have to admit that I wear reading glasses. Does my vision have to be 20-20, or is there some wiggle room here? Well, uh, Jim's comment there uh, is a bit flawed. Uh, it doesn't take into account the nature of the Bible, because that command in Leviticus was given for priests as part of the Old Covenant. And it has to be read in that context. So, Uh, The Bible, you see, is not just a collection of timeless commands that have fallen from heaven and were found in a smoldering crater one day at the point of impact. We have to take into account that there is an unfolding revelation. So that's the first principle we need to bear in mind when we read the Bible to understand it correctly. Uh, It is an unfolding story. And the second principle is this. The Bible interprets the Bible. The Bible interprets the Bible. So we're thinking about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Uh, Does this mean, therefore, that all the laws in the Old Covenant have no relevance for us today as New Covenant people? And the answer, of course, is no. Uh, In different ways, they are still relevant. But to rightly understand their relevance for us today, we need to look at this second principle of the Bible interprets the Bible. You see, the best and only really reliable commentary in the Bible is the Bible itself. Uh, The New Testament tells us how we are to understand it. Uh, We don't need some magical key from outside the Bible to unlock its meaning. So if we want to understand how the Old Testament law applies to us today, we read the Bible. And the more we get to know it, the more it makes sense. The more we see how it fits together. And indeed, uh, if I was able to speak today to Jim, this writer of this letter to Dr. Laura, I would say, really, you need to go back and read the Bible and understand it more properly because you're not really using it appropriately. 
So uh, let's look, therefore, and let's think about how we, as New Testament people, understand and apply these Old Testament laws. Now then, traditionally, Christians have grouped these Old Testament laws into three categories, uh, moral, civil, and ceremonial. Uh, These categories are not perfect, uh, but they're a good general guide, and we're going to consider each in turn, thinking about how they apply under the new covenant. So firstly, therefore, uh, God's moral laws in the Old Testament, Uh, they're what we know as uh, the Ten Commandments and the related laws to them. God's moral laws. What we're going to see is this. uh, They are timeless. They are applicable both in the Old Testament era and the New, under the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Uh, Let me give you an example. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 gives this great summary command of the first half of the Ten Commandments. Uh, It says this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Fast forward to Matthew in the New Testament. There is Jesus. He's approached by a teacher of the law and said, which is the greatest of God's Old Testament laws? Which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus singles this one out in Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. Jesus says this is still the greatest commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. It's still applicable. It comes straight through to the new covenant. Uh, In terms of the second half of the table of God's law, which we saw in the kids' talk, uh, Leviticus 19 summarizes that well. Verse 18, uh, love your neighbor, love your fellow human beings as yourself. Fast forward again to the new covenant, to Jesus. And in Matthew 22, again, Jesus says, this is the, most, the second most important commandment in the law. Uh, Jesus summarizes it beautifully in Matthew 22, verse 40, where he says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. They're summarized. They're still great. They're still applicable. They still are in effect. Uh, look at Romans. We'll come to this in our series when we get to chapter 13. But uh, in verses 9 to 10, Paul writes this about the moral law. The commandments uh, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, uh, do not covet, and whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in this one rule, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. New Testament believers are called to still live out that law of love. So the, the God's moral law comes straight through, if you like, to people in the New Covenant. I wish our kids were still with us now because uh, Ephesians 6 verse 2 quotes the command, honor your father and your mother, uh, as we saw, and we encourage them to remember that that is still applicable under the New Covenant. So what we're seeing is this. In terms of God's moral law, there is a direct continuity between the obligations of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Uh, These commands are timeless. But let's move on to uh, God's civil law. Because there are other commands in the Old Testament law, and some of them fall into this category of civil law. Uh, Their purpose was to regulate the civil life of Israel under the Old Covenant. 
Uh, They relate more specifically to the situation of God's people in that Old Testament era. How do we apply uh, the civil laws given to Israel? In the New Covenant, what we're going to see is this. It's not the law which just comes through word for word, but the principle behind it, which now is what we're supposed to follow as New Covenant people. So let me give you an example. Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, says this. Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Well, do any people here have an ox at home just to keep the grass down? You do? They're a bit big. They do make a mess of the lawn, don't they, with their hooves. That's right. Not many of us have oxen, but the command, nevertheless, still speaks to us today. Because when we get to the New Testament... Uh, In 1 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul there is writing and telling uh, the Christians at Corinth that it is right that they should pay uh, those who have dedicated their lives to full-time Christian ministry in their service. He said you should pay them money. You should give them a livelihood. Uh, But he uses this Old Testament scripture of the ox uh, not being muzzled to actually support his case that people who dedicate themselves to full-time Christian work should be paid. Uh, Look at 1 Corinthians 9, verse 8. So he's already made his point, they should be paid. Do I say this merely from a human point of view? In other words, is it just my opinion? Uh, Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. is, Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says, this for us, doesn't he? There you go. The principle applies through. Please don't refer to me as an ox afterwards. Now, uh, the New Testament doesn't work through every Old Testament command like that for us. But examples like the oxen give us a model of how to handle other such laws. If you like, it's a working example. I'll give you one more. Uh, Leviticus 19 verse 9 commands, and uh, I quote, When you reap the harvest of your land... Do not reap to the very edges of your field. Leave them for the poor. So, uh, should we be saying to our farmers when they get their combine harvesters out, uh, guys, you need to leave about a meter around the edge uh, just for the poor? Uh, Obviously not. But what is the principle that carries through? The principle is still the same. We need to practically care for the poor and specifically the poor amongst God's people. So, we've seen God's moral law, uh, God's civic law, and in the civic law, the principles apply through. Uh, Finally, uh, God's ceremonial law. Uh, In the Old Testament, we're going to see in Leviticus particularly, there are many laws that regulated the worship of God's people under the Old Covenant. And when we get to the New Testament, we see the Bible interpreting the Bible, And the New Testament says this, the laws which regulated Israel's worship in the Old Testament are now fulfilled and obsolete. The Old Testament laws, of course, and we're going to see these in Leviticus, uh, there's many laws about the sacrificial system, uh, the priesthood. But these are now all obsolete because, of course, they point to and have been fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, The sacrificial system points forward to Jesus' sacrifice for us. Therefore, we don't have to murder our cats and dogs. Uh, 
the Old Testament priesthood points all forward to Jesus as our our high priest. He intercedes to us on our behalf in the throne room of heaven. Therefore, we do not need priests anymore to intercede for us. Uh, Look at Hebrews 10, verse 1. The law, speaking in this sense, uh, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. So going back to our friend Jim, uh, when he writes mockingly that his neighbor doesn't like the smell of him burning a bull on his altar, it's clear really that Jim has never read the New Testament letter of the Hebrews. Because if Jim had read Hebrews, he would understand that we no longer have to sacrifice animals. It's not rocket science. It's all there in the Bible. The Bible interprets the Bible. So we are going to be looking at this in more detail in Leviticus. Uh, But uh, bear with us for now. This is just a general framework. So let's move on to thinking about how Christians should relate to the Old Testament law. And we're going to see two things, finally. Uh, The law is a bad master, but a good friend. And in many ways, what we're going to be seeing now is a framework for what we'll be digging down on deeper in Romans when we get back to it. So this is a brief, a very brief framework. Uh, The law is a a bad master. Uh, For the Old Testament believer, uh, the law was a very bad master. There was nothing wrong with the law itself, and we'll see this in Romans 7. Look at verse 12. Uh, It says there, So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. But if you were to read the New Testament letter of Galatians, in chapter 3, verse 23, it points out this. Uh, Before this faith came, talking about faith in Christ, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. And the reason for this is explained then in chapter 3, verse 10 of Galatians. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So you see, the law in the Old Testament says, Do this and you shall live. But the people couldn't do it, Uh, they continually failed. And so, as a result, they were condemned. They were locked up under the rule of the law. And for them, there was no escape from that prison. But the death of Christ changes all that. Now look at Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It's what we've been seeing at Easter. uh, His death on the cross. His taking our punishment in our place. And through that, through taking our curse on himself, he redeems us from the prison of the law. So in many ways, uh, Christ has wonderfully set us free from that prison and from the penalty of the law. I don't know if you've ever read any of those books of the Lebanon hostages. Uh, Brian Keenan, Terry Waite, John McCarthy were some of the better known ones. Uh, I've found their books uh, a fascinating read. Uh, And each story, of course, is a harrowing account of their captivity. Uh, So degrading, uh, so dispiriting. And of course, there comes the point when for them there is a happy ending. Uh, They one day were released, and how great was their joy, and the joy of their their families and their nations. Uh, 
finally to be free. Can you imagine how utterly mad it would be if after release, they voluntarily became hostages again? But the reality is that that is what Christians sometimes do. As Christians, we have been set free from the law. That is to say, because God accepts us through faith in Christ, the law no longer holds us captive. The law can no longer condemn us. And yet sometimes Christians start to migrate back to a law observance as being the basis for their relationship with God. It's what we call legalism. Effectively, Christians start to check themselves back into prison. And the letter of Galatians was written to some Christians who were in danger of doing just that. They were returning to the law as the basis for their acceptance with God. And that is destructive and it's dangerous because the law is a bad master to have. It imprisons us and it condemns us. So let me ask you this morning, if you're somebody who trusts in Christ, do you feel accepted this morning by God? And if so, why? Is it because you've had a good week and you've not sinned too much? Uh, Is it because you've come along to church this morning? Is it because you managed to make it along to a midweek study group? Is it because you've managed to fit in some quiet times in your busy schedule? Is it because you've resisted some persistent sin which you've struggled with? Is that the basis in which you feel accepted by God today? Because it is, then you're in danger of slipping back into legalism. Because we're only made acceptable before God because of our trust in Christ and his death for us. And therefore, as Christians, we need to beware checking ourselves back into prison, slipping back into legalism when we think about the basis in which we're accepted by God. So law is a bad master. Uh, We've been set free from it. But then the second and final point is this. If we've been set free from the law, does it still therefore have any place in our life as New Testament believers? And the answer is, wonderfully, it does. The law is a bad master, but for the New Testament believer, the law is a good friend. We mustn't slip into legalism, but we must beware then throwing the baby out with the bathwater and slipping into license, thinking we can live any way we please. We don't fear the law anymore because it can't condemn us, but it has actually become our friend who then, which then walks by our side and guides us. As we have seen in Romans, one of the law's functions is to reveal to us where we stray from the right path. Romans 3 verse 20 said this, if you remember it. Through the law, we become conscious of sin. And therefore, the law has this wonderful function of pointing us to Jesus and also, as Christians, keeping us dependent on Jesus. The law keeps us walking closely with Christ each day. And the law helps the Christian by telling us how to live in a way to please God. As those set free to bear fruit for God, we go to the law and we say, 
hey, Lord, I know now you're my friend. I really want to live to God's pleasure. Can you give me some ideas to how to do that? And the law, therefore, informs us. This is how you should live. So the law is now our friend. It reveals our sin, it points to our Savior, and it guides us in God's standards. And as we're going to see in Romans, Christians have the gift of the Spirit. And one of the marks of the Spirit-filled life is that we delight in the law of the Lord. So may that be our experience as we live as God's new covenant people in this week ahead. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the fact that you've been timelessly working out your purposes throughout human history. Uh, You've given an old covenant, which points to a new covenant. And through that covenant and Christ on whom it is anchored, uh, we are made acceptable before you. Therefore, help us, please, we pray, to understand the place of your Old Testament law, uh, how it points us to Christ, how it releases us from the condemnation of the law, but also then informs our path as New Testament believers. Help us to remember that distinction between the moral, uh, the civic, and the ceremonial law. And so therefore, use your word and your law in an appropriate way as new covenant people. And we ask this to your glory. Amen.